It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Let's just start out with prayer and expectancy. Move to the edge of your seat and let's just uh, anticipate that the God of the universe will be present with us. Father, we are so privileged to know you. Uh, thank you for the gift of Jesus and thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for life abundant that has been gained for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the outpouring of your very life into us that we may live unlike this world, that we may know you, that we may participate in your kingdom work. Lord, we just want to celebrate the grand gospel this morning and cherish it afresh from all the different facets and angles that we could see it from. Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus more clearly today. I pray that every single person here today would be here on purpose and not take it lightly that they have the opportunity to hear the word of God and to understand it in a greater way. Lord Jesus, may all of us move to the edge of our seat with expectancy, for you are a great God. It's in the precious name we pray, amen. All right, well, I am, I don't know what this is, fourth, fourth is I, it's fourth in the series uh, that I'm in. Uh, for those of you that are maybe not as familiar with uh, Daily Thunder, so this is every day, and oftentimes, We'll be in a series. Now, every now and then, we're going to have a special guest star. Did you notice how I had a star on the end of that? Instead of just special guest, it's a special guest star uh, that will speak on Saturdays. But uh, Nathan teaches on Tuesdays and on Thursdays, but he's going through longer series. Didn't you start a new series, though, Nathan? What was, the, what was that one? Yeah. The I Am's. Oh, the I Am's. Is that on Thursday uh, instead of Bible survey? Yeah, so... Nathan's uh, tend to be long, long series, where I have like little micro series, you know, just to sort of keep you hopping. And we're in a smaller series right now, which could grow because I have so much material on this one, and it's on the marvel of manliness. Isn't that great? I might be more excited than all of you. Uh, there's a whole bunch of ladies in there that are like, oh, well, I'm not exactly sure. Should I be excited? Yes, you should. Uh, so we're smack in the middle of that, and this is deeply stirring to me. And you could say if you're uh, a woman or of the, uh, that persuasion, uh, then uh, you would uh, maybe wonder why you would be attracted to such a theme. And that is that the man of all men, Jesus Christ, lives inside of each and every one of us. And he expresses, though he expresses his manliness, if you could say it that way, his gusto, his grit, in and through a woman, a little differently than through a man, it's still the same power, the same strength. And that's why it's important to understand everything that is going to be said is very manly, but it is something that must be enunciated and lived out in and through every woman as well. So this is called the time of the hammer. Uh, it's, I typically, when I've referred to this, because I've traveled all over the country and actually shared a message similar to this, uh, and I usually call it the time of the man, and that's a dead giveaway of what this would mean then. In other words, the man being Jesus. And there's the time of the man. And if you could think of when is the greatest proving ground of that man? What was he here for on earth? What did he come to accomplish? Well, there is the time in every single one of our lives. We have little miniature versions of that time that prepare us 
for the time. It's the greatest challenge, as I oftentimes say, the Omaha Beach. So if you know World War II history, it's the day of testing. It's the moment of testing. And every single one of us needs to be built for such a time. So in Proverbs 24, 10, it says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Another way we could say it is if you, if you faint in the time of the man, your strength is small. You see, we are all being prepared to prove the kingdom of heaven on this earth, but we prove it in and through how we face our trials, how we face our difficulties. When something is challenging, we don't just fall to pieces. We don't fall onto the ground and go into the dead bug position or the fetal position, as many would call it. In other words, we actually rise up. And even though our knees are knocking, we are built for such a time. And you know that this is an interesting uh, thought, but the kingdom of heaven is revealed more clearly in and through us when we stand in the midst of our difficulties than at any other time in life. You see, you can just have it going easy and nice and your bank account's just wadded full of money and you're healthy and robust and everything's going great. Well, and you can smile and love people. Yes, the kingdom of God is being evidenced through you. There's no doubt about it. But it's when you're tested and tried and you're weak that God seems to showcase his strength and his glory at a greater measure. And so as a result, we begin to recognize it's like, I want to be prepared for such a time. I remember having a discussion. I don't know what we called the group. If it was our advanced training, our practicum, we've altered names over time. But it was a group of very serious missions-minded students at the time. And I remember that. Whatever we were going through, it was like, hey, we're being prepared to go. And we were all, there was like some project they were going on as far as examining uh, like the the openings in the world today, the open doors that we could go through. And the conclusion was, it was a very fascinating discussion that we had and a very fascinating study that we had. But the conclusion was that the most open times for the gospel are in times of tragedy and difficulty. That if we are ready to go, there are natural disasters, there are extreme circumstances all over the world. And that what that causes is for a door to open. And yet, for a Christian to be ready, that's hard, because oftentimes you don't know when those tragedies are going to happen, and you already have to have everything from passport to money in the bank ready to buy a ticket to immediate, uh, instantaneous springing up to get onto a plane and go. And that's not normal for most of us, and we're, we're, we're sort of embedded into life, and so you can't just lift up and go. And yet it's fascinating to think that many extreme circumstances have happened in this world where people become vulnerable, if you want to say it this way. Even governments become vulnerable because they need aid, and in can flow a Christian witness with a very direct hit on the souls that are weak. It's, so it's fascinating to think that weakness is a springboard, is a stage upon which God shows his strength. Not only in a situation like that, like a national tragedy, but also in our lives. A personal tragedy. When people see a personal tragedy in our life and they see us rise up with the robust strength of heaven, it actually impacts them. And so as a result, we don't want to faint in the day of adversity. We want to show the strength of heaven. The brave-hearted soldier. So many of you have you know, we have a Bravehearted Media Group. We have, I have a book called The Bravehearted Gospel. I get associated with the term. It's not a bad term to get associated with, right? But then people immediately think of the movie Braveheart. That's Braveheart. This is Bravehearted. Bravehearted 
A brave-hearted soldier is an ancient way of describing a soldier. So it's not a newfangled way that just came out because Mel Gibson made a movie. Uh, it is an ancient term of description, and it is a soldier that has acted with the most illustrious courage, repelling the enemy at the point of greatest threat, and demonstrating an undauntedness in the face of enemy fire. And at the bottom, you're going to see, I make a little note, it's one who doesn't faint, faint in the day of adversity. That's a brave-hearted soldier. That's what we desire to be. So what I'm doing is, remember, this is in a series called The Marvel of Manliness. I'm lifting up a quality of manliness here. It's, it's a quality of just the Christian. But it is one who doesn't faint or grow tired in the midst of the greatest difficulties, but actually rises up, keeps their head above water. It's called perseverance, yes but to give it more dimension for our souls to sort of grip. This is one of my favorite quotes from Ellerslie history. It was at the time our youngest student, still may be to this point, the youngest student that has ever come through Ellerslie. Many of you may know his older brother. His name is Philip. Uh, and, uh, but Philip's younger brother uh, came through Ellerslie. This is a long time ago. David is now working with uh, his little feet and on tour, and he's like this huge guy. He's taller than Philip, makes, <laughs> makes Philip look all teeny. Uh, and I tell you what, he was a very, very special student at the age of 12. I'm not saying he wouldn't be a special student now, but there was something very special going on inside of him, and he had a very unique troop of men in his semester that were a little um, uh, jiggly around the middle, not in size, but in behavior. <laughs> we as a staff had some unique challenges with that particular group. And this is, he gets up in front of everyone, at this, at 12 years old, and he says this in front of the entire uh, student body. Men, <laughs> may it not be said of this semester that the women had to be the men. Yeah, okay, now that's, uh, can you see why that ranks up there? I mean, that's, that's good. And so I was just sort of standing there going, thank you, thank you, David. Uh, <laughs> the self-preserving mindset. So many of us struggle with this. We don't know we have it, but we do. And all the way from a young kid all the way up, we can easily have what, what I'm going to call a self-preserving mindset. It's like, hey, I, I have limited time. I have limited energy. I have limited resource. You can't keep taxing me. God, you have to look somewhere else you know, to have that need met because I'm, I'm at my end. And so there's always two. Remember, there's... There's a first condition where we are born and we are in Adam and we are in a sinful state. And that sinful state is defined as sinful because we are selfish. So what God has set us free to live as is as a second man, born again. So we live selfless. The problem is we have a, it's like a vacuum pull into this mentality. We're also habitually used to this mentality. So it shocks us a little when the spirit of God convicts us. It's like, what was that? Like, I thought I was a new creature in Christ Jesus. Why am I still thinking selfishly? It's because of any habit that you could have. You have to establish, you have to exercise the new man. You have to exercise the grace of God. You have it available to you, but that doesn't mean you're using it. And so when you don't use it, you have a tendency to go back to your old toothbrush. You know, the one that you've cleaned out the shower with, and you change that out for a new toothbrush, but the old one's still sitting there with grime all over it, and you're just so used to reaching for it. Yeah, see, now that'll teach you to start exercising the new man right there. So the self-preserving mindset. You're tired. Let someone else carry the weight. Let someone else bear the burden for this one. 
Okay, now I don't know if we could go around the room and just have a raise of hands of how many of us have, it's funny because we have quite a few staff members in here. We're like, was well, Eric doing this for me? No, this is for me, guys. Uh, this is for me, not for you. Uh, you're tired. Let someone else carry the weight. You know how many times I've thought uh, that it's like there has to be someone else that can carry this. God, you can't just expect me to car carry it and then keep carrying it. There has to be a swapping out, like people with fresh strength that could carry You're still asking me to carry it? How can I keep carrying this? And so it's very easy to go into the self-preserving mindset and desire that someone else would pick up the mantle. I remember in the topic of relationships, when people would be like, Eric and Leslie, you just have to keep going. You have to keep talking to this. There's no one else that's ready to stand in the gap for this. You know how much weight that is? And I, I'm thinking, God, please set me free from this mantle. I do not want to keep carrying this message forever and always. So now I'm going to contrast that with the self-expending mindset, which is 100% in every situation. I don't care if you have 1% left. You still have 1%. What are you doing with that 1%? That's my 1%. All I have is 1%. Don't ask me for my 1%. You know, the hardest money to give away is your last pennies. It's, it's interesting, but I, I remember when I was in missionary school, I had like $5 to my name, and I needed to buy saline solution. I mean, if you wear contacts, you know what I mean. If you're missing saline solution, you're sort of uh, up that proverbial creek without a paddle. And I have like $5 left, and God asks me for it. And I tell you what, I almost would say it's easier when you have like 100000 to give 10000 away. I mean, think about it. That's a lot of money. 10000 just going to give 10000 away. Why? Well, that's because you have 100000 But if you have $10, giving $10 away, I know it doesn't sound like very much, but when you only have $10, that's extremely difficult. And that's why this tests us. When we are limited in our resource, it is harder to give away. Do you remember the, uh, the widow? and all she had was enough flour and enough oil for one little cake of bread. And then Elijah comes in and goes, yeah, could you make that loaf for me? And he says, if you feed me first, you'll never run out. You see the principle there? In other words, all she has is enough to, at one loaf, her and her son are going to make it, eat it, and die. And then Elijah steps in and says, I'd like that resource right there. But this is all I have. I know, give it to me and you'll never run out. And this is a principle of the kingdom. You see, we struggle with self-expending because we don't trust our God in that weakness. But if you trust your God in the weakness, you will find that your mentality changes towards the trial. So I'm calling it 100% in every situation. I don't know if any of you have ever heard me teach on the post office principle. If you've gone through Ellerslie, there's a possibility you have. I used to always have it baked into our, our, our training because we had a whole segment uh, on decorum. I don't know if any of you guys are old enough to remember decorum at Ellerslie. But, and I taught the post office principle. But the post office principle is, I, I, the post office itself, I don't know if they actually call it the post office principle, okay? I'm calling it this. And I have a hunch that post office employees are trained in this, okay? Because I've been around the post office many years. And have you ever noticed that the, the line can be going out the door and the post office employees are never in a hurry? They just sort of are talking and they'll go back in the back and check the shelves and come back and go, no, we can't seem to find that. And if you can, and they're giving counsel to the person and it's just like, excuse me, but could you, hey, 
there are people in line here that need your attention too. Could you quicken up the pace? However, you're going to find that you really appreciate the post office principal when you get up to the front and they're focusing on you and they're dealing thoroughly with your situation. So the post office principal is 100% focus. You don't care if the line's going out the door. You don't care if bombs are going off. You don't care if there are sirens going off down the street. You don't care if a tornado is coming through town. That person in front of you is getting 100% of your attention. I tell you what, it's very impacting when you do that because you know you can wait in line because you know that they are going to give you 100% of their attention when you get there. So your assignment is right in front of you. Be fully present, be fully given, fully deposited. Everything needed for absolute engagement will be supplied. So in ministry, I'm just going to give you a forewarning. You will have this tested. I have had this tested my entire ministry life. There are situations, I remember I was, uh, I've been in situations where I'm extremely tired. And I get done with ministering and then a line, I, I used to be like right in the front and this line could form. Like someone comes up to me at the very end and I'm picking something up and so I'm talking with that person and someone else comes and then and I start to feel tired just seeing the going around the room. It's like, oh God, I don't know that I can do this. And I'm already tired, right? So that person in front of me, I mean, this is just a decision way back in the beginning of our ministry. That person in front of me is getting the post office principal. And I'm going to be 100% there. And have you ever had it? I don't, know if you've, I don't know if this is just in ministry. I'm guessing it's not. But where that person is a talker, too. And they don't have the sensitivity. And they don't see the behind them. Even though the behind them is like, and they don't see it. They're, they don't have that social sensitivity, so they're just talking and talking. And in those moments, it's like the great test of grace within the minister. Yes, yes. And to give them your best, instead of to cheapen them, to look down the line and say, excuse me, but did you realize you're not as important as you think you are? There are other people that want my attention too. You know, that, that is a very delicate balance. I have had many times when I've been praying that somehow, some way, the conversation could conclude. And I, or I've prayed that Nathan would see what's going on and come to my rescue and say, hey, Eric, uh, did you need something? Oh, yeah, you know, now that you mentioned it, could you get me a glass of water? Oh, hey, what, what's your name? Uh, in other words, just something, because those situations can be very, very difficult. But you know that, and I've, I've said this a lot of times, that as a minister of the gospel, your message offstage is heard at a far deeper level than on stage. You, know, you could say great things on stage, but it's what you say when you're done speaking in those moments when you are tired that actually showcase the gospel and the power of the gospel far greater. So 100%, my God asks me to watch with him. So if you've ever had that situation where you know God wants you to pray and you don't feel like praying, Again, it's the same principle. It's self-protectiveness or self-expending. My wife asked me to stay up and talk with her. If there's any married men in here, then you'll understand this moment of great delicacy. For whatever reason, women like to ask you to talk as a man right when you're at your most tired moment, right before you go to bed. And of course, they would be defensive and say, what do you mean by that? I, that's the only time you're available to talk. 
And so it's a hard moment for a man, and yet this is the self-expending moment. My children ask me for special attention. Like you're, you're tucking them in at night, and you know, when you're tucking in, there can be a subtle strategy in the parent to quicken the pace. Because as long as you extend that, you end up getting to bed later, and you're already tired. So it's just like, can, Daddy, can you pray for me again? Of course, of course. But it's an interesting battle. And in can you read me a story? Oh, not, not tonight. Not tonight. <laughs> Daddy, you haven't read me a story in three weeks. Well, it's always not tonight. Uh, because you have a tendency to self-preserve. And these are tests. These are just great opportunities. My disciples need to be pulled through. So you're working in a ministry like this. And there's people that are caught. And they need that help to be able to wrestle through those are hard moments when you're already tired. My staff is in need of my strength. The weak are desperate for my help. My hard-earned resources are required for the sake of the glory. Well, when you have little, it's hard to give it all. But this is the principle of 100%. So this is the time of the hammer. This is when, what you were built for. A hammer, also known as the force amplifier. I really like the term force amplifier, and you'll understand that as we go. Hammer, I gave a definition at the top. An instrument for driving nails, beating metals, and the like. A hammer is a tool meant to deliver an impact to an object. The most common uses are for driving nails, fitting parts, forging metal, and breaking up objects. Hammers are often designed for a specific purpose and very widely in their shape and structure. So I don't know if you're catching this, but this is a description of a man. Right here. And I love that. Uh, very widely in their shape and structure. Yeah, that's about right. The usual features are a handle and a head, with most of the weight in the head. <laughs> However, when you understand how significant that is, when you recognize that there's a handle and a head, there's you and there's Jesus. This is what a man is built. He's built for the most difficult task. Look at this, an instrument for driving nails, beating metals, and the like. Well, who wants that job? This is, if you're a self-preserving uh, instrument, you're going to be like, no, no, excuse me, but I don't want that. You see, the head is going to take all the hitting, by the way. You do know that, that the head is going to carry, is going to absorb the main blow. However, you as a handle have to allow that head to affix himself to you and make you useful. A hammer is a force amplifier. I just really like that statement. That works by converting mechanical work into kinetic energy and back. In this way, great strength is not needed to produce a strong force enough to bend steel or crack the hardest stone. In other words, even though you as the handle are not that impressive, you get that head up there and that amplifies. When it connects, it amplifies the strength. So even a little movement, a little prayer, a little huh from you of faith and suddenly whack, it can actually bend metal, crack stones. A hammer unused means steel unbent and stone uncracked. So there is a tool that God desires to use in this world. Hint, it's you. God desires a vessel. He desires to build hammers. To build, and I'm going to say men and women, because there's no reason why a woman should be excluded from this understanding, even though this is called the marvel of manliness. You see, there is something that God is looking for, and that is a strength that is ready for the time of the hammer. When a hammer is needed, the hammer's there. A nail is sticking out. Oh, no. 
Well, who's willing to rise up in that moment? One who has the head. A quick look at some hammers in history. Phineas was typically how we pronounce it. Phinehas uh, could be an accurate way, even though that doesn't sound as good. Phineas, uh, great story. Uh, in Psalm 106, it refers to Phineas. It says, then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. So there is a need of a hammer in the nation of Israel. There is a crisis at hand, and you're going to see Phineas rise up. This is the time of the man. So in Numbers 25, now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Oh, no! This is terrible, guys! Can you believe this is happening in Israel? They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Oh, say it isn't so! So Israel was joined to Baal at Peor. What are they, they, these are servants of Jehovah, and they're literally going unto false gods? They're going unto Baal? Oh, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, every one of you, kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So this guy, his name is Zimri, who's a chief among his family, is going to literally, in front of all of Israel, in front of Moses, take a Midianite woman and just sort of brashly say, I don't care what you think. I don't care what God thinks. This is happening in front of all of Israel. I mean, this is dangerous stuff, guys, okay? You don't want this in Israel. Now, when Phinehas, uh-oh, what's going to happen, guys? The son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in hand. That eight was supposed to have been deleted, but it wasn't. Sorry, guys. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. Eesh. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So what we are seeing with Phineas and his javelin is we are seeing the time of a man, when a man is needed. A man sees what is taking place, and he rises up and does something. Now, of course, this is a picture of Jesus who made atonement for his people, who within the zeal of the Lord went and wreaked havoc on the powers of darkness and plunged them through with a javelin of a different sort, the javelin of his own death on the cross. And so what we have here is an incredible picture of the man, William Wallace. So Ellerslie is named Ellerslie after the start of the third chapter. What's well, the name of the third chapter in a book called The Scottish Chiefs, which is called Ellerslie. And it's described, it's William Wallace's estate, which is also his, his birthplace, and then he named his estate Ellerslie. 
but in this uh, estate, the description is of Job chapter 29, which is the most manly uh, chapter likely in the Bible. It's arguable. I mean, it's hard to say. Psalm 18 is pretty good, too. But William Wallace, uh, in this one scene in the Scottish Chiefs, it's a very stressful book. I just want to forewarn you if you're ever going to read it. It's a rather stressful book because it's like good against evil, but it almost the whole book, it just feels like evil's winning or is going to win. And so as a result, you're in this constant tension. You need to turn the page because you need to see if this is finally going to be resolved. And then it isn't. And then you have to turn another page and it gets worse as you turn the pages. It, it, it is a good book. Don't, don't worry. I'm not trying to scare you off from it, but it's a, it's a really powerful story. So William Wallace is being hunted by the very nobles of Scotland and they want him dead. They want, uh, they've already betrayed him. He's running for his life, so he's actually in disguise. He, he, he flees uh, from England over to France, and is, then he comes back because he knows his people need him. He knows the Scots need their hero, but if he comes back as William Wallace, he'll just be captured and killed. So that's not going to do any good. So he comes back in disguise as Guy de Longville which is sort of an awkward uh, thing. And, he, and I always, the guy wears his helmet constantly and somewhat, no one ever questions that. He just always has his helmet on. So no one can recognize who he is. And maybe that was normal back then. It just seems rather weird to me if one of you was wearing a helmet constantly. And it's like, what's your name? Guy. It's like, hmm, that seems strange. Uh, but maybe that was normal back then. So that's the context. We're at this key moment in the Scottish rebellion against England. Indeed, so great was the havoc that the day must have ended in the universal destruction of every Scot in the field had not Wallace felt the crisis. So the, the Scots are turning and running from the battle and all will be lost. Oh no, we need a man. We need a hero right now. So he said in the, it would have been lost unless uh, Wallace had felt the crisis and that as Guy de Longville, he shed his blood in vain. See, if he went out and fought as Guy de Longville, it would not inspire the troops. They would just have some French guy who didn't retreat, who was just out there fighting, going, well, I don't know why that guy cares so much. But so as long as he is Guy de Longville, he will not inspire the troops. But if he shows his true identity, he will give up his life. Well, that's a good moment. So in vain, his terrified countrymen saw him rush into the thickest of the carnage. In vain, he called to them by all that was sacred to man to stand to the last. He was a foreigner, and they had no confidence in his exhortations. Death was before them, and they turned to fly. The fate of his country hung on an instant. The last rays of the setting sun shone on the rocky promontory of the hill which projected over the field of combat. He took his resolution. What's he going to do? And spurring his steed up the steep ascent, stood on the summit where he could be seen by the whole army. Then taking off his helmet, he waved it in the air with a shout, and having drawn all eyes upon him, suddenly exclaimed, Scots! You have this day vanquished the Southrons twice. If you be men, remember Cambus Kenneth and follow William Wallace to a third victory. The cry which issued from the amazed troops was that of a people who beheld the angel of their deliverance. Wallace was the charge word of every heart. The hero's courage seemed instantaneously diffused through every breast. And with braced arms and determined spirits forming at once into the phalanx, his thundering voice dictated, the Southrons again felt the weight of the Scottish steel, and a battle ensued which made the bright esque run purple to the sea and covered the pastoral glades of Authorian with the bodies of its invaders. Whew! 
Uh, the whole book's like that. <laughs> this is the moment when Eric wonders what he would do. And all I can say is, God, I don't want to do what I would do naturally because I would be running with the Scots. I mean, I probably would have died a long time ago in this whole story, by the way, guys, if I was William Wallace. I don't think there's any salvation for Scotland. However, there's a second man option, and that is to allow the one who knows how to function as the hammer, who knows how to do the hard things, to live inside of me in the moment of trial, in the moment of decision. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You see, our natural tendency is to flee in difficulty. It is not to stand. See, most of us don't feel that strong. And that's not bad because we're not that strong. But he is strong. And so when we allow his strength to work in us, we can do things that otherwise we could not do. We are built for such a time when all seems to have faded, when all hope is lost, when it seems like everything is hanging on the edge, this is our moment to stand. In the hardest situations in life, when everyone else is sitting and you're looking around going, someone has to speak. That's actually the time. There's a reason why you think that. And there is a God who will, if you will allow him to, he will speak through you. He will lift you up, stabilize your knees, and enable some sound to come out of your mouth. You ever had one of those dreams where you're afraid and you're like, and you're trying to scream and you can't scream? That, that's not that different from what it's like when you are terrified and you need to speak. It's like you don't, you don't have a voice. He has a voice. And it will come through in that moment. You guys have heard the story of Richard Wormbrandt, haven't you? Of when uh, the, Stalin comes in with his communist regime and pushes Hitler out of Romania, and he begins to gather together. All, his, the greatest threat in all of Romania to Stalin and communism is the church. And so he first gathers all the leaders together and sticks the KGB in the front and on the stage. So everything will be monitored and everything will be done in front of them. And they're going to ask, they're going to first speak and they're going to invite the pastors into their council and into their protection. So if you will heed what the atheistic communists want, we will let you keep your churches as long as you don't violate what we believe and what we stand for. We stand for the fact that there's no God. <laughs> How can you be a pastor and stand with this? In other words, it's an impossibility. But pastor after pastor was kowtowing and crumbling before this. The pressure was too great. They, they had already gone through Hitler's regime. Now they're being tested with Stalin, two of the most wicked men in all of Earth's history, and they go from one to the next. I mean, you can imagine, I can understand, this is the time of the man, but hey, they're not that strong. And then you have Richard Wormbrandt in the midst of it. Well, I should say, there you have Sabina Wormbrandt in the midst of it, because this lady is tough as nails. Aren't you going to say anything, Richard? Aren't you going to remove the spit from Christ's face? Could you imagine that moment if you're the man? I don't know, even if you're the woman. That's your husband. The father of your one son who's not that old. If I say anything, Sabina, they will kill me. You guys remember the famous quote? 
I would rather be married to a dead man than a coward. So he stood up. <laughs> he became prisoner number one in Romania. And he became the example. They were going to make an example of Richard Wormbrandt, so he received torture at a higher level than anyone else because they were going to turn prisoner number one and show and have him stand on that same stage, talk to that same group, and declare that he was wrong and the communists were right. How would you like that? That's the time of the man, okay? When I look at that story, I'm like, my knees are knocking. And I feel Leslie's elbow inside my ribs. I'm like, come on, don't, don't pull a Sabina on me now. And yet I want her to pull a Sabina on me now. I want to pull a Richard. I just feel really thin. Really, we, I don't feel like Richard Wormbrandt. I don't think Richard Wormbrandt felt much like Richard Wormbrandt either. I think he felt a lot like Eric Ludi would feel. Except he believed his God, and he cared for the glory of God more. So he was willing to rise up like Phineas. He was willing to rip up off his helmet like Wallace. He was willing to stand and face that cross the way Jesus was willing to face his difficulties. Built for this hour. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this cause, I came unto this hour. So this is how we oftentimes think, too. We want to be spared from the hour of trial. But what, have you, what are you being built for? What was Richard Wormbrandt built for? He was built for that hour. That's why it so changes us. But we still have a little plea that creeps out. Oh, Lord, spare me from this hour. But you were built for this hour, weren't you? Remember all that training, all those difficulties, all those trials you were going through? Why were you going through those for this hour? This is the time of the hammer. This is the time of the man. You were built for now. So don't run now. I mean, could you imagine Jesus felt this in the Garden of Gethsemane? This is, I mean, everything in his human side is feeling like what ours would. But he knew why he was here and he was built for it. So here's a conversation in Esther 4 between Mordecai and Esther. You're Esther in this story, which this helps bring in the girls a little better maybe, you know, because some of you are still on the outsides of this message going, what is this, how, do, how does this relate to me? So Mordecai says, for if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So in our trial, in our difficulty, Esther is staring at the same thing. If I say something, he's going to kill me. I mean, that's a pretty grave consequence. I mean, many of us are like, if I give my last 5% of energy, I'm going to fall over. That's, that's a lot smaller than what consequences Richard Wormbrandt, Esther, Wallace, Phineas are dealing with. And yet, men and women throughout history have come to that extenuating circumstance, that time, and have made decisions that don't fit the grid of humanity. They fit the grid of heaven. And what we see here with Esther is, I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Oh, talk about epic background movie score right now. That's the time of the man. And what's funny is it's a woman. And yet what she's showing is the ultimate manly disposition. I know that sounds funny, but that's what the man is built to do. That's what Jesus did. 
He, this is like the Garden of Eden right here. A Garden of Eden. Garden of Gethsemane right here. You see, what we have is we have that challenge. I, I, this is an amazing uh, thought that with Esther, to think that even if we don't stand, even if Richard doesn't stand, even if Wallace doesn't stand, God will still accomplish his ends. He still will do what he is going to do. It might have to be a longer wait. It might be another 10 years before. God will accomplish his ends. No matter what the enemy does or no matter what foolish antics we pull, no matter the stunts of cowardice that we may have, God will still get his purposes into checkmate. But we are privileged to participate in this. And he has chosen us as his tools, as his instruments, as his vessels. I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The hour of need. Someone will receive a blow. Either a nail must be pounded in, steel must be bent, or stone must be cracked. A hammer is called upon. And for this cause, you were born. For such a time as this, spend yourself, take your stand, do not cower, do not retreat, do not back down, steal the spine, rise up and take the blow, enter the fray, and rizomai, quit you like a man. So I don't know what that's like for women to hear as a man. I like it a lot. But I have a hunch, even though I've never been a woman, that you can hear the same exact thing with the same response internally. It's the man that's being called by. It's the Spirit of God rising up and doing the manly thing. Father, I just ask that you would fortify us in our inner man, strengthen us in our inner man. Lord, build us for the hour of need. Build us for the time when a hammer is required. Lord, I pray that we would not shrink back in the small things in our life today so that we could boldly move forward in the more difficult trials in the days, weeks, months, years to come. Lord, we need you to be able to do this. We acknowledge that up front. Apart from you, we are weaklings. We are cowards. And we will fail, just as Peter failed on the night of the crucifixion. Lord, that we will walk away and deny as well. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would stir within us a greater boldness, a greater courage, that you would shake the room in which we are in, and you would fill us with the spirit of boldness, that we would rise up as Phineas against the Zimri compromise in our own soul, in our families, in our culture, in our churches, Lord, that we would stand for truth with that zeal of heaven. Lord, we love you and we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.